0: We had these previous revolutions. We had the PC revolution, which meant that usability became important for a lot of people, not just IT departments. We had the web revolution, which made so much broader use of usability and being business. You make money if you can make people understand your website. But then the AI revolution is an even bigger, I think, even bigger revolution, which is going to change the way everybody works. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers in Tech, a podcast that brought you by the UX Writing Hub. This is a very exciting day. First of all, we're doing a video podcast, which is something relatively new to us. And um, today we have a brilliant guest that I've been a fan of his work Since I started my career in UX, Jacob Nielsen is here with me. Probably you know about him already. If you don't know about Jacob Nielsen, know that Jacob is a PhD in human computer science, started the first ever human computer science program in his university uh, in Denmark. And he runs today a group which is a fantastic resource for any UXer out there, whether if you are a UX designer, researcher, UX writer, or even product manager, anyone in the field, go to this website. It's a gold mine. Gold mine, gold mine. Jacob, how are you today?
0: Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me on the program. doing great so far. Thank you. <laughs> awesome.
1: So, Jacob, Tell me a little bit about your experience, how you evolved into the field of UX.
0: Well, I've been doing UX for for 40 years now. So I started, as as you mentioned, when I was a university professor in Denmark and uh, doing, I would say, research on two things, which was hypertext and also on usability engineering methodology. And so hypertext is how to link information together, how to get online information. Nowadays, we would say over the internet, but that was not the case, you know, back in in the 1983, but get information from computers rather than from printed books anyway. And I should say that back then, this was actually a little bit hard to do that research because the research science foundation agencies and all didn't really feel like giving a research grant to study this online information and hypertext because they thought that was a rather frivolous thing. Today, it's the foundation for the web, and it's a huge thing. But that just shows you that sort of the people who didn't give research grants don't always know the future. But I guess I do not say I knew it. I just thought it was exciting. But I did that research anyway. And then after a few years as a university professor, I decided that, yeah, I like teaching students, but I like more to have an impact on the world. And then I got a job of, and I moved to the United States to work at the telephone company Research Lab, which was called Bell Communications Research. And so that was the part of Bell Labs, which is kind of the, maybe the world's most famous uh, research organization In history, it was a part of that that was owned by what was called the regional telephone companies. And so I continued actually working on the same two things, online information hypertext and also usability engineering, how to make a user research faster and cheaper and more efficient. And this was, of course, great for the telephone company because they have so many huge software development projects and I have to say, I kind of continued my career along those same lines, that it was wonderful to work at the telephone company, and it was very, very brilliant people at this this laboratory. But at the same time, the phone companies were these very big, slow-moving companies. And the internet was really taking, the web in particular had been started and was taking off. And so in 1994, I moved to Silicon Valley, and I got a job at Sun Microsystems as what they call Distinguished Engineer. And distinguished engineer has a definition of that job title is that you are the world's number one expert in your area, and so therefore you should figure out what's important to work on. And that was very good because in reality they had hired me to make Unix the Unix operating system easy to use. That was like a doomed project because that would never be truly easy to use. But I decided that it was more important for the company to make the web easy to use and sell you know large amounts of computers to all these um, e-commerce, dot-com bubble services that were coming out at the time. And then I worked there for a few years, and then almost like the same thing happened again, which is, well, usability and making things easy is not just a matter of Silicon Valley or the computer industry, And this is where my business partner, Don Norman, comes into the picture because he called me up and said, shouldn't we start a company together to bring user experience? And he's the person who invented the word user experience. so That was his preferred term. Shouldn't we bring user experience to the world, to all type of businesses, not just to the computer businesses where I was working? And Don is very persuasive. And of course, he was right because it was time to bring UX to the world. And so then we started the company together, and that's basically like fast forward 25 years. I was running this company for 25 years. And then just very recently, I actually got tired of the administrative headaches of having to run a consulting company because it's a, I'm not going to bother you with all the work, but it's a lot of work. And so I actually stepped back as being the day-to-day president. And instead, I've been focusing more on, on writing. So I'm kind of like reverting back to my original love, which is to bring UX to the world which I'm doing now, including actually in, in this very podcast, I'm trying to make people understand that we can do this. We can make technology so much better for the entire population if we just do a, f- you know, a few relative simple things, but we have to do them. I'm actually a follower of
1: your new Substack where you okay. cover a lot of on point, fascinating topics related to UX, and I just read your last sub-stack about generative AI and how to use AI in your process, which I really enjoyed reading. So it seems like you've been doing you, you've been leading the industry for many, many years and keep doing that. So that's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, actually, if I may just interject here, because I think, again, if I was just going through my career path quickly, and I almost think that this last step is one more like that which is we had these previous revolutions. We had the PC revolution, which meant that usability became important for a lot of people, not just IT departments. We had the web revolution, which made so much broader use of usability and it being business. You make money if you can make people understand your website. But then the AI revolution is an even bigger, I think, even bigger revolution, which is going to change the way everybody works, particularly all knowledge workers. But I think even other type of workers like farmers and fishermen and so forth, but most people in today's modern high-tech economies are knowledge workers. And so AI is something that really changes knowledge work. So I think it's the next revolution. That's why I'm so excited about not having it happen only by the technologists, the engineers developing AI. It's important they do, of course, because we don't have anything unless they build that software. But it also has to be driven by human needs and user experience. And that's that's, that's kind of my contribution to that.
1: You know, I've been seeing, interestingly enough, many companies that, I wouldn't say many companies, but design-wise, you have some companies that just add AI because they can, without an actual use. So, like, you see... I don't know, even on LinkedIn, automatically generated stuff and in different apps, like automatically generated stuff just because they can. And it's interesting, like what kind of use cases that are successful are we going to actually see with the implementation of AI within our products or what type of new products are we going to create with this type of technology? Because I think it's behind even our imagination because what's going to be in five years from now, it's something that probably we can't imagine and we can't even guess. But based on your past experience, yeah. what type of products do you envision that we will see in the next few years that contains AI in, with a successful implementation?
0: Right. Well, I mean, I think first of all, I think you' are exactly right that there are two kind of extremes. Uh, on the one hand, there is the doing it just because we can and it makes no sense. And on the other hand, there's completely new things that we can't envision. So I think both of those true cases are true. And we've seen that with all these previous revolutions I mentioned so many times, like right? people putting up websites that were just a brochure put on the web that had terrible interaction design. Don't do that. Similarly, with AI, don't just uh, spam out lots of low quality content because you could just get it by pressing a button. No, low, we don't need more low quality content on the internet, honestly. So, so, so that has always happened, unfortunately, and it happens again. But we should definitely fight against that. And on the other hand, there's also going to be these new things. And I think the internet has so many examples of things that are happening now that 25, 30 years ago when the web started, nobody would really have predicted. I mean, one thing I'll mention, which is actually an old thing, is something like, like YouTube, where it lives off of people uploading what you might call homemade videos. And that is a huge success. And yet, if you asked 30 years ago, what will be the future of video on the internet? First of all, you could not show video on the internet because it was so low bandwidth. But people could imagine, yeah, we can get higher bandwidth in the future. So when we get higher bandwidth in the future, we'll get video on demand. So you can have this big catalog of all the possible films that have been made, and you can click on the one you want, and it'll show when you want it. And that actually has happened. I mean, Netflix and many other services are offering video on demand. But what nobody had predicted was that homemade videos would be actually even more popular than professionally made films that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to produce. And these homemade videos that any Professional from Hollywood can come up with like 50 different reasons why they're bad, and yet people watch them. And people watch them because they are so exactly information that you're interested in. Whereas a general film, it might be entertaining, it may have some very famous, good looking movie stars, but it's going to be like made for the very general public. And so very targeted, that's one of the things the internet shines on. And I feel that AI shines at even more. Targeted, because if you make, let's like say, this podcast, and we hope there will be many, many people watching it, but it's going to be the same for all the people who are watching it. What AI can do is individualization, so it can create specifically just for you. Truly, each individual person will get into, get different advice from the AI because it will know you and it'll know your background and your project and your needs. And that's not quite the case now, but it almost is. And I feel like that that is going to be another big revolution of having that completely individualized content. And, of course, we have to have some way of creating the base for that, that the AI then takes and um, makes for each individual person. And that's not I don't really know how that will be done, but I think that's one of the, the big things to come. We can even see already now there's quite a big business in what's called AI companions, and this is something I personally would never have predicted. I would think, who wants to have, a, like a virtual girlfriend or a virtual best buddy or something like that that you can, you can talk to? It turns out a lot of people like that. Uh, it's empirically true that it is the second biggest uh, business in AI right now in terms of just traffic to to those services. The biggest is still something like like ChatGPT. That's much even much bigger. But after ChatGPT, the number two is these virtual companions. And and so again, I would not have predicted that, but it's again that individualized attention. You feel like that you have that exact artificial person, It's artificial, but that exact person exists basically to help you, to talk to you, to be sympathetic to your problems, much more than any psychiatrist you may pay for, or so 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 virtual companions have become really big. And I think that's just an example of what we will get later, because that personal relationship, even though it's not personal because it's with the computer, but that relationship is super powerful. And we know this from humans because humans – had this great tendency to want to be social animals and connect to others and so on. But these so these other applications are not that enormously strong that you want advice on your business project or advice on what to cook for dinner tonight. Those are good things to get. And if you can get advice on what to cook for dinner that knows what you like, what the other people in your family like, what you already, food you already have in your refrigerator, you know your budget, how much you can afford, if you have any dietary, it keeps going, all the things. And you can go to a website that has recipes, but it's not going to be the same. You ask the AI, give me three ideas for what to cook for dinner, and it's going to be exactly for you, and you're going to be all three things you love, and it's going to be... Maybe like ranked, or oh, this is the most healthy, this is a little bit less healthy, but if you really feel like it tonight, try that instead. And so that's the type of services I think we, we, we will see much, much more. That's of.
1: interesting. It seems like most people use ChatGPT already as some kind of AI companion, just without the consistency of knowing you and having some more information about you. And you have some hacks even to tackle that. If you like create custom instructions, you can it some more info before you yeah. prompt it and...
0: Exactly. No, it's very, very powerful. And the other thing I'll also mention, I think, is very powerful for AI is I, I call it ideation is free, which means that many ideas cut the same as a few ideas, which is not true for humans. If you are in a design project or if you're in a writing project and you want to have five different versions of some content, it's going to take a long time for the writer to produce that in different tones of voice or different alternatives but why, why should you only have 10? Why not have 10? Why not have five? Why, have five? why have not have 10, right? Well, double the time to create that if it's a human. For AI, for that's something like chat GPT, you just ask for, give me five headlines, give me 10 headlines, give me 20 headlines. Well, headlines you can scan quick so you can really look a lot of them. Or if it's more like a bigger description, give me 10 different ones in different tone of voice. Give me a short one. Give me a long one. And it takes the computer like a few seconds, which means that's a few seconds you wait for it to spit out the text. But it's it's honestly nothing, so that so it's not free literally zero money, but it's it's virtually free. And I feel that's a very very important thing about AI: is ideation is free. Give me many ideas. A lot of these ideas are going to be bad, right? I mean, AI is absolutely not perfect, and I want to hundred percent emphasize we need humans to judge the AI. It gives me 10 ideas. Five of them are just terrible. They just get thrown away right away. The other five are varying degree of goodness. And maybe my actual what I actually do is I pick a little bit from this and a little bit from that. And that's something we call apple picking. So we did a big study of how people use AI. And one of the findings was that people do this apple picking, which is a pick a little bit of here, a little pick of there from this long scrolling list. And in terms of user experience or user interface design, ChatGPT DPT does not really support this user behavior very well. It's just a long scrolling list of undifferentiated text. And so the next release, I hope they have actually do some, either just read our article or they do their own user research and they follow the findings and implement a better user interface. They really, really need that. But even with the bad user interface they have now, people do this. And so that I feel is one of the really great benefits of AI is that it can just give me a lot of alternatives at no extra cost. And then you combine it with human knowledge. I mean, you cannot only say to the AI, give me a social media post, bang, it's on LinkedIn and I've never even reviewed it and it goes out under my name. That is so terrible. So, I mean, honestly, never, never, never do that.
1: People are listening right now and they think to themselves, how might we design AI products, so do you have, based on probably any UX methodology that were used in the past 25 years, even more, like what type of methodologies we should follow today in order to create better experience for AI tools? Because I would guess that most of the companies that will Right now we have the huge tech layoff and so on, but I will guess that we will rise from that low that we are right now. And that just like in the dot-com bubble crash, many great companies rise like Google and Facebook and Airbnb and uh, Spotify and everyone basically, you know, Amazon. So I would guess that most of the companies that would rise right now would be AI companies. And I would guess again that every UX designer in the next few years, it would be like 100% mandatory that they will have to create some kind of an AI product for a big AI company or a small AI startup. So what type of methodologies would they have to follow in order to create
0: great successful user experience for an AI product? First, just to comment on, on your point about that, yeah, there's a bit of a setback now, but I completely agree with you that that's a temporary setback. And and your historical examples are to the point that dot com bubble people were so depressed back then because when the crashed and when the bubble burst, people were so depressed. It became better, and some companies were honestly bad ideas and they deserved to go out of business. And other companies turned out to actually be great, as you mentioned, and have become super big and very rich now. And the same will happen again. And in terms of user experience specifically, I can take this longer perspective of personally 40 years, but actually it goes back even before me, more like 50, 60 years. And there have been ups and downs. But if you plot any form of curve, like when I started, there were about 1,000 people in the world who were full-time professional user experience. So that's what I mean. There was 999 other people than just me. But now there's about 3 million so this is in 40 years, there have 3,000 times more user experience people. A few of those people have been laid off, too bad, but it's not it going about back to only 1,000 people again. No, it's it's still almost 3 million people. And in a few years, it's going to be 4 million people. So there will be another million, people, million jobs created over the next few years. And actually, my prediction is more like 10 or 20 million people if you look further out. So a lot more jobs created in user experience if you take a long time long-term perspective. If you take a short-term perspective, any quarter, it can go up or down. That's a completely different, but long-term, absolutely up because it works. It makes products better. It makes them able to have a broader market of more people because so few people are geeks and know everything about technology and can use a difficult engineering-based product. And most people are not like that. So it works and it gives you more sales and therefore more companies do it. But what should you do for AI? I feel that basically the same as always, because again, our experience going back to the old days, we had a methodology for doing mainframe products at IBM. We had a methodology for doing PC products at companies like Microsoft. We have a process for doing websites at places like Google and Amazon. Guess what? These methods are the same. They're all user testing. They're all based on the same very simple idea. Get representative people from your target audience. That's number one. Mandatory. You have to get real users, real people, and they have to be representative. If you pick the person from the office next door, another geek in the company, what? it's not user testing. User, user testing means testing with the actual customers. So that's number one. Number two is give them real tasks to do, representative, realistic tasks to do. So they have to perform or try to do something with your user interface. If you just show it to them and say, hey, here's a design I'm working on. How do you like it? That's very, very different reaction than people trying to accomplish or achieve something. So that's what you want to watch watch them while they achieve something. And then the third point is the simplest but the hardest, which is shut up <laughs> and let the users do the talking, because if you tell people, uh, do, wh- what do you think about this button? Now you've drawn their attention to that button, and you have destroyed your, your test, right? So you have to like, stay quiet, let them do it. But honestly, those three tips, I could have given them, and actually, you know, it did work at IBM. Back in the early days, also skipped over like all the ex- other places I've worked, but I did work at IBM for a short period of time. That was what we did at IBM. That's what we did at the phone company. That's what we did when uh, advising on PC software or, or on websites. It's the same. Um, there's only one, I think, difference, which is AI is probabilistic. So that means that it's different than all the other computer systems because any other computer system, if I click this button, I get some the same result every time I click this button. The same thing happens now with the AI. I ask it the same question, but the answer is going to be different every time, and that makes a little bit of a difference in your test because it's harder to compare between two users because they're not in the identical test situation. And that gives you some problems if you're doing things like measurement studies where you're trying to get to the second, how long time it takes people to do something, because some people just kind of randomly get a better result, a better answer than other people. But I think in the bigger scheme of things, we're not actually... So much testing, thats those specifics, I think I mainly recommend qualitative user testing anyway. So you're watching the types of user behaviors, the types of things that makes it easy or difficult for people uh, to use your system, the types of, of types of things people want to do when they are trying to achieve that task that you are hoping to support. And so all those types of things really turn out to be the same. And the user studies that we've done so far on AI systems have been done with the exact normal methodology and giving like absolutely great insights. And I can just really deplore that a lot of the current AI companies don't seem to be doing this because their products really suffer from a lot of specific usability problems that you can find in like two days of testing with a handful of users. So I assume they didn't do that testing because otherwise they're easy to fix these problems. But that's my recommendation to go forward. So for a company Hire some UX people because there are people who know how to do this already. This is different from what it was maybe thirty years ago or forty years ago. There was very few people who knew how to do this. Today, there's I said there are three million people who know how to do this around the world, and your country, of course, any individual country, fewer. But there's a lot of people in any country, and I know because look, just my newsletter that I started only five months ago, we already I already have subscribers from one hundred and six different countries. It's really worldwide, every country. You have UX people, so you can hire them. And um, you don't even need a a huge team, even though a bigger team is better because there's a lot of more details to pay attention to as well. But for the big type of picture, you you can do these very simple usability studies, and you can learn a lot, and it takes very little time. It takes relatively few people. You just have to get these people. And I feel that's the downside of the current AI project is that most of them, not all of them, I know about several where they have good UX people who have done great work. But the big, most famous ones tend, unfortunately, to be very, very engineering driven. And this is history repeating itself again, because that's always the case when you get a new technology. I mean, it's invented by, by technologies, by engineers, and that's how it is. But, and then they build the products and they build them based on their thinking and therefore, the first products are all, always have a lot of, of difficulties and, and issues, and don't really match human needs because they don't have that angle aside of the design. Or yeah, I mean, design—it's—it's it's not really design if it just happens as a side effect of the engineering of development of building the product. That's a true design. Design has to be a considered deliberate process. But anyway, design is a word of two meanings: it's a noun and a verb. So there is a design, there's a noun, there is a user interface. Now you build something, it has a user interface. It was not designed with the verb of being created deliberately by people who are specialized in that, know how to do it, know all the considerations, know all the methodology. But so you get a design that was not designed, unfortunately, but that's what we have to fix now.
1: Do you have a good example of the ROI of design or ROI of UX? Because... I guess this is the case now, Company, why companies are not uh, hiring many UX people because they're not convinced it will return their investment. Why should I pay 100K US dollars a year if I'm not sure it's going to to
0: be worth more than that, right? That's true. Well, I mean, it, actually, so this is maybe a game where history is repeating itself because it's a natural thinking in the beginning if you have something very compelling, and AI is very compelling, so this is why we've been discussing it, because it is an extreme advance in human productivity, in quality, and hopefully then also quality of life, not just quality of, of deliverables. So, AI is a huge advance. And so, because of that, they can get away with selling a product that's actually too difficult to use, that doesn't really meet Human needs that has usability pro- uh, problems in it. Like I can mention something I like, like MidJourney, which is a great tool for generating uh, images. It generates really beautiful images in like a few seconds. And if you had to hire a graphics artist, you had to pay this person for days to create the images you can get in a few minutes from MidJourney. So it's it honestly is a very compelling value proposition, but. It would be a more compelling value proposition if it didn't have a host of large usability problems, a very obscure command line language with, with weird abbreviations for parameters, and the parameter values are obscure. And I mean, I can go on forever about what's bad about Midjourney, and I use it myself anyway because I get beautiful pictures. Now, here's the value for the company is that. They can have this big a market of people who really want this and who are have enough kind of skill at technology to be able to use it. I mean, I do have a PhD, even though it's many years ago, from the Technical University of Denmark, even though it was in user interface design, not in programming, but I still have a lot of engineering background, even so. So I'm able to do this. Hundreds of millions of other people are able to do this. Do you want like three billion people use your product? Oops. Now you've got to make it much easier. And so that's the value proposition, to so get it much broader used. And that, I think, is what hap- what we need, because I, I do believe AI is like the huge revolution. It's, to me, kind of equivalent to the Industrial Revolution. So you know, before the Industrial Revolution, we depended basically on muscle power, either human muscle or animal muscles, like horses and oxen and those type of animals. But we depended basically on, on muscle power to get anything, kind of any physical action done, move things around, melt iron, whatever it would be. And industrial revolution says, no, we will use some kind of power source rather than muscle source. And so, okay, in the beginning, it was coal. Burning coal was very polluting. but So this is a bit similar. Like when you start with something that actually is sort of bad, but it has some advantages also. And then later on, there are better power sources we have now. But the point is you change from muscle power to machine power. And that means that, I mean, just consider a car versus a horse for getting around, right? Much better. And with AI, what I say is AI is a forklift for the mind. It can lift things cognitively. You can lift the cognitive burden off you. And that means that for all these knowledge work, which again is the vast majority of the economy in all advanced countries, knowledge work can get something between 50 and 100% better. By using this, just as with the Industrial Revolution, people could make, well, the classical example from Adam Smith was to make pins, but you could make pins many, many times faster with less human effort, which means that the pin gets to be much cheaper, which means people can buy a pin or many pins, use them for more purposes, and so pins get to be everywhere. And all the other things you can manufacture in the factory also get to be much cheaper and get to be everywhere. Cars used to be very expensive only for like millionaire people. And then Henry Ford invented like the assembly line. Now they can make cars cheap. A normal person can buy a car. All these things have been happening for a few hundred years, right? In industrial revolution, similar things with, with the cognitive revolution that we can do knowledge work faster, cheaper, and higher quality, which is kind of the amazing thing that the studies done so far show that even though it takes less time to do a given deliverable, work deliverable with AI than without AI, the rated quality by independent judges is higher. And the judges, of course, don't know what comes from humans or what comes from humans with AI. But humans with AI beat humans in terms of quality of work products so much. And it's really is because the AI gives you like all these different ideas to pick from. You can pick the best. And then because AI produces just the stuff so fast, it allows the human brain more time for editing and revision and applying judgment, right? So so the human role becomes judgment as opposed to production. And similar with the Industrial Revolution, not so much in very early days, but nowadays, the main human role in manufacturing is to figure out what should be manufactured. And then all the machines do the hammering and the, the heating up of stuff and all that, all those things, right? So similar... Evolution, I think, is going to happen, and it's kind of like if you talk about again industrial evolution, and if so, the factory owner, should you invest in like make getting electricity into your power into your factory, or should you just run everything on steam, steam power, which you already have? Now we think back, maybe. 150 years, whatever, when electricity started really becoming big. And it's empirically true. Many owners said, no, I have steam power. I'll stay with that. I don't want to pay money for getting electricity to replace what I have. We all know now that electricity is vastly superior to steam for running a factory. And so gradually over whatever many years, Uh, we had that replacement happen. And I feel like it's very similar here. Like, yeah, you can develop products without UX. I mean, you can. It it, it happens. You get bad products, but you can ship them, and you can sell some. And it just takes a little while for people to recognize that product development with UX gives you this much bigger market, much higher quality. So that's kind of the... It's a very, I guess, florid argument I've been giving you here, but I think that's the underlying real argument. It's similar to saying... If you have a factory, install electricity, come on. Don't run on Steam. Install new X Men. Come on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow, what a brilliant take. Thank you for that. It's amazing. Like every this animation student could be a Disney level production studio creating like 10 movies in a month right now, right? So like
0: Oh, exactly. It's exactly that, that you unleash the creativity, which again, AI is creative in some ways, but not in other ways. So the driving force has to be the human, but you can get a lot of the uh, more less discrete ideation and ideas from the AI, and you combine the two, and you're empowering individuals or small teams to have this vastly higher level of both productivity and quality simultaneously. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they will be equal to, let's say, Disney, because Disney is probably not stupid, so they're probably also going to be using AI. But but it means that you can do things that will have huge impact, huge effect, huge distribution, and because you can do them to a creative vision, where a big co- corporation cannot freely pursue creative vision because they have all these, ooh, it's too dangerous to do this, and I got to take these considerations into account wherever. So it's very stifling to be in a, in a big corporation, but if you're on your own the worst that happens is you fail and then you try again. You're not destroying a big company by doing something bad. You're just, that project didn't work so well. That's the only only problem if you're on your own or if you're the three buddies. So it unleashes enormous creativity by adding this productivity. So productivity leads to creativity because you can try more things. And that's, I mean, that's again one of the big lessons in kind of genius research. There's a separate research field called genius research. So they study all these kind of creative geniuses like Beethoven and what have you. And it turns out Beethoven is actually one of the exceptions, but most creative geniuses don't actually know how to do good work. They are very talented and then they just do a lot of things. And so the more things you do, the higher the probability that one of them is a masterwork or many of them is a masterwork if you do many things. And so people with high talent will create more masterworks than people with low talent. But high talent. But you're lazy and you never produce anything. You're still not going to do any masterwork. So this ability to just get things out has its own value in terms of, of the creativity, in terms of the quality. Plus, again, the quality goes up as well because you can pick from the AI suggestions. So I really feel like, like it's going to be like Beethoven, but he was able to write like 10 times as many symphonies. It doesn't mean necessarily 10 times more great symphonies, but it might mean three times as many great symphonies. So I feel it, it's going to be a, a huge benefit to the world.
1: I agree. And I couldn't agree more about something that you said before about uh, you talked about mid-journey and um, and the UX of mid-journey. And it's interesting because I released a free mid-journey course last last year for free, just for people to experiment with it. And probably 50% of the course is dedicated to the setup of mid-journey like yes. connecting to a Discord channel, open a Discord account, having a Midjourney bot inside of your Discord. It's like complicated. And the UX of it is just terrible. And then dali Free came a few weeks ago now. And you have really good UX. You just write to it and voila, you have something that is quite similar to mid-journey, even a bit more accurate than mid-journey. Sometimes, depends. If, I still like better Midjourney because it's... Uh, A bit more creative, in my opinion. But with Dali, you get more accurate results. Like if you want something that will look like a video game or Lego bricks or pop-up doll, it will look like it. And the UX of it is just better. So we have a very big mid-journey community in Israel, 50,000 people, and now most of them are using Dali just because the UX of it is a bit better and they can be a bit more productive and efficient. And the more accessible you make it to the masses, probably uh, the better the product is going to be, just like you said.
0: Oh, yeah. This really proves this point that if you make it easier to use, people will use it more. Or if a competitor is easier to use, which is the example of Dali 3 versus MidJourney, then people will will shift. And I I actually agree, I still like MidJourney better for some things like some of the kind of prettiness and some of the creative control. But at the same time, there's a lot of things it does do. First of all, it has atrocious usability and all the parameters in the setup. But secondly, it also doesn't have enough natural language understanding. So if you want to say two things next to each other, or a man and a woman, or any kind of thing, that anytime there's more than one item in the picture, it starts having trouble because it doesn't have quite good enough natural language understanding. That's otherwise one of the oldest problems in AI is you have to say something like, the cat is on the mat. I don't need, that's like at least 30 years ago, people worked on that problem, admit you, and it doesn't quite get that right even today, whereas DALI gets it more right, I should say, anyway. So you have more chance of getting the picture that shows what you want to show, and that's after all the purpose of this, and that's why they win. And you just write kind of relatively easy things, and then they transform what you write into the actual prompt. And so this entire thing about so-called prompt engineering that was very big in the early days when The first good AI products came out maybe half a year ago or so now. I think that's going to go somewhat away because it will. one of the big usability advances will be use AI to use AI. So in other words, you describe what you want in simpler terms, and then the AI will do, again, ideation is free, a prompt engineering is free. It'll just do four different prompts based on what you say. And you can look at these four and say, ah, these three are not really what I want. This fourth one is... Let me take that prompt and issue it again and get four more pictures with variations of that idea. And then you keep going, rather than you having to know prompt engineering and you having to know strange parameters and so forth. So, so again, yeah, the easier something is to use, people will move there. And uh, that should be a, a lesson for all of these products.
1: Definitely. In your last substack, you wrote that the primary way to interact with AI tools is using prompts and then you gave it four tips that i really really liked i will share them right now so always provide context in your prompts i love this tip because at the end of the day this is how the machine works It's based on a huge library of a lot of data and the more context you give it the more accurate your result is going to get and then you said to ask for multiple options and then iterate on the output, I agree with it, like follow up, and then build a prompt library. So I love all of these four tips. Brilliant, good stuff.
0: Good, well, thank you. No, and, and that is, again, how to do it. And I would say, actually, maybe the, the fifth tip is just do it, get started, because it can be rather intimidating for people who have not used AI yet to hear about all the things we're talking about today. And the first time you do it, maybe it's not like a super great success. So so the last tip in, the, in in this newsletter was actually start small. And this is probably true in any case, but we were particularly writing for advice for user experience people. So don't start with saying, maybe use AI to like redesign my entire project and make a big research plan and everything. Maybe you start with a very small thing, like, like write some different headlines or do some other smaller change or smaller thing that you can do right now. And I feel that's my ultimate advice really is you have to start now because the only way to understand how to use AI for your job in your business is to experiment because we don't actually know. I right? I mean people like I we can come up with advice, but we don't actually know. And so the only way to find out is to experiment. Some experiments will fail. That's the nature of experiments. But try. And if it's small experiments, it doesn't matter if they fail. So start small and start today. Because one of my kind of conclusions is that any day where you do not use AI is a day where you're undermining the future of your career. Because it's just guaranteed, if we look two years ahead, it's going to permeate everything. I mean, AI will just be there in everything you do. And yeah, you can make, have other people can invent that. Or you can invent that or you can also, but you can also gain experience, which is how you become a highly skilled professional, which equates to highly paid professional as well. If you care about that. So the only way to become really great in the future, because it takes, you cannot like in one week take a lot of AI courses. And now you become like a super expert. It requires time. And as it does for everything else, it requires time. And so for to be a great person with two years experience in two years, you have to start now. Only wait to have two years experience. In two years, start today. And so therefore, you start with some small things that are easy, and then you build up gradually to more complicated projects.
1: That's a great tip. Couldn't agree with it more. Have,
0: we're getting into the end of our interview, our
1: fascinating interview. And I wanted to ask you, what would you recommend for specifically for writers in tech? Like the folks that... Right now, we use an app named Riverside to record this podcast, for example. It's not an affiliated podcast, but we're using them. And for example, there is some text over here in the interface that make it super easy for me to understand what is happening. I know that there is a recording on the screen. It says actual recording is in higher quality, which is great because now I'm a bit more calm because I know that even if I see a little bit blurry, the finalized result will probably be better because it's going to upload it to the cloud on your end. Anyway, writers, they're doing such a fantastic job to create better experience for us, when anyone basically. So, how would you envision their role in the in in the near future using this the AI revolution?
0: I think that content is the most important thing on the internet and writing a text is the most important type of content. I mean, image is also very important, video is also very important, but text is the most important type of content and content is the most important part of the user experience. So therefore, writing is super important for user experience. But as with anything else, everything is a cost-benefit analysis, right? And so the more expensive it is per kind of unit of writing to be produced, the fewer companies will pay for that. And AI can really magnify the productivity of writers, which means that the cost per unit of good content will go down, which means that more people will do it. And so I don't think anybody should fear for their work because now half the work is done by AI. That means we only need half the writers. No, it means that there will be like at least twice, probably three or four times as much as a professional UX writing done because it becomes better, easier to get that quality in your user interface. So I actually think that it, that AI will expand uh, the workforce rather than, than, than um, narrow it down. But that said, it'll only expand it by people who know how to use these products uh, well. Uh, so that's why I say you've got to start now to get that experience and to build that experience over the next two years. But I feel like f- for writing, I mean, writing is actually almost like the perfect... There are two jobs that are perfect for AI, and one is programming because AI is great at producing software code that you then have to check as a human programmer. But it's also great at creating creating text content. And so, but again, you have to check it because it comes up with these so-called hallucinations that are just bad or it comes that are wrong, false. Or it also comes up with things that may not be false, but are just like poorly written and not quite on what that brand needs. So check it. But it's but that's the human t- job, and it's also human jo- job to say what should be done in the first place. So humans have a huge role in this, and you can really emphasize your use your your skills there. But I think that the task changes maybe f- to be more of an editor. So the editor really there's two types of editors, right? There's the editor that says. We need to have an article for our newspaper about such and such, go out and interview people and find and write the article. And there's another type of editor says, this is a draft article. Let me make it better. So those things, I think, are really human jobs. Just kind of producing word count. I think is more and more going to be uh, the AI's AI part of that equation. And again, you just ask it to do five different versions or 10 different versions, depending on how long it is and how important it is. And if it's very short and very important, like a headline, maybe you ask it for 20 examples. And so it can do that, generate the word count, and You can be the one who has the judgment to pick, this is the right one. And it's only almost the right one. It needs this word changed. <laughs> so, so humans have a huge, huge, huge role there. But it will make the content. So we have the data is already here, much higher productivity and much higher quality. And so, so there's just no doubt. This is that is the way to go. For and writers are one of the top two categories, I would say, of jobs where they can really benefit from this.
1: I agree, and just like any person could build a like a Disney level studio from their basement, so maybe right now um the cycles for creating digital products so instead of having like a design sprint that by the end of it you get a feature maybe you can get like 10 different apps within one design sprint because now we have apps that create uh, ai with user interface and ai with code and now we're like 10 times more efficient but we need 10 times more writing
0: exactly actually we probably need even more so i think that the the demand will go up by more than the productivity goes up because you're getting that cheaper per unit and higher quality per unit as well. So those two things together means demand goes up. So I, I really feel like no worries about unemployments, but do worry about getting going now. Don't wait. Don't procrastinate. It's not perfect now. It's probably not going to be perfect in five or ten years either, but it will be better So I have kind of like two principles I like to say about this. So the first is that I call it Jacob's first law of AI, which is, first of all, the AI we have right now is the worst we'll ever have. It'll be better in two years, in five years, in 10 years. And the second rule is AI will not take your job, but your job may be taken by somebody who's better than you at using AI. And so that's why you have to be good at using AI.
1: Jacob Nielsen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I learned a lot personally. And you also gave me a lot of confidence in the work that we do because sometimes when you are zoomed in into your process and your own tiny world, it's difficult to see like the bigger picture. And I feel like you helped me today to see the bigger picture. And I thank you for that.
0: Well, thank you so much. And again, yeah, remember the big picture. That's one of the few advantages of, of getting old, is you can remember how things used to be and sort of track these bigger trends. And the bigger trends are just so clear. I mean, it's really very bright future ahead for UX, for UX writing and for now for using AI.
1: Thank you so much for your time and Jacob, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sergio. And the listeners, thank you so much for sticking around. Uh, my name is Yuval Keshtecher, founder of the UX Writing Hub, brought to Writers in Tech podcast. Check it out. Go to our website. We have a free UX writing course for you to check. And we have also free AI for UX course. Also check it out. We Invested a lot of effort to make it on point for you relevant to the topic that we've talked about today. And that's about it. See you next time. Bye.